Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of HashiCast. Today, we're joined by Renan Diaz from Slalom Builds. Hey, everyone. To kick this episode off, why don't you just take a moment to talk to us and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into DevOps. Sure. So my name is Renan Diaz, and I work as a cloud architect for a consulting firm called Slalom Build, where I architect and implement cloud solutions that use DevOps and security best practices. But I started out as a iOS developer at that time, you know, nearly 10 years ago, and building apps for iPhone and iPad was, was huge. And I remember university, my favorite programming language was C. And I, so I, I, I wanted to work with something that would involve either C or something similar. I came across mobile apps development. And when I was kind of comparing iOS and Android, I saw that, you know, Android used Java. And I was like, mm, I'm not too sure. I don't think so. <laughs> but then, you know, for iOS, we would, we would use Objective-C which I mean, in a way is kind of kind of the same style as C. And I think Objective-C is considered to be you know, part of the same family as C. So I was sold on Objective-C and iOS development, but I, it, it was funny because I'm, I'm originally from, from Brazil and in Brazil for you to have a MacBook, for you to have a, to buy a, an iPhone, it's, it's just a lot of money. And so when, even though I, I wanted to start developing iOS apps, I just, I just didn't have the money to buy an iPhone or a MacBook. And, and then I thought, okay, so what am I gonna do? And so I found an iOS course and, and the school provided all the tools needed to, to build iOS apps, including MacBooks and, MacBooks and everything. And I learned for, for a couple of months. Then at some point I, I had an opportunity to build an iOS app for my university. And that was a time in my life when, you know, before I, I got my first job and I, I would just work day and night, day and night. And that was also the time where I started being exposed to infrastructure and backend development because you know someone had to build the backend for that mobile app. So I challenged myself to not only learn iOS, but also backend development and a little bit of infrastructure. It was pretty tough. I mean, I, I worked hard on, on that app, which you know it wasn't great anyways, but that gave me enough experience to get my, my first job as an iOS developer. Then because I had this experience building backend and apps, I wanted to explore building actual websites. And that's, that, that was, you know, the time when Angular was, became, was, was becoming popular. I remember reading a book about Angular in like a week or so. So I, I spent some time working as a front-end developer as well, as well as a back-end developer. You know, I, I don't want to say full stack because that's not really what I was. But I was, you know, because I was learning all of these JavaScript frameworks, Angular, Backbone, Handlebars, I saw that I saw that as an opportunity to start learning Node.js as well. And that was still... It was still early days for, for Node. I think the first version I, I learned was 0.10, I want to say. And to be honest, I, I was loving that. I was loving that experience working with different front-end frameworks, back-end, so on. But I but then I remember one day, a friend of mine came to me and said, hey, Renan, have you heard of Docker? And I was like, Docker? No, I have no clue what that is. And I didn't have any any infrastructure background. So it was it was hard for me to fully grasp what, what that was. And so what he tried to explain to me 
what it what it was but i just couldn't get it and you know me being crazily curious about it i just went on and and did a, a thorough research to understand what docker was all about and I, and that's when i came across an article talking about devops and infrastructure as code and you know i was reading about being a, a devops engineer and so on i was like oh, i want to be that i want to be that that sounds cool and so yeah so that's when my my journey began i always love hearing about people's origin stories and how they got into it because I know there's um there's actually a chart that I like sharing to people. It's like a little guide that shows all the different paths you can take to get in in terms of, you know, starting with EC2 or containers or networking. But we don't hear as much about the actual career work people did before they went into it, like the, the origin story and more so than the actual technical side. Um, I love hearing them. I personally went out of being an executive assistant and straight into being a DevOps engineer. So I didn't have much of an infrastructure background going into it either. And it was quite a large jump, really, um, a lot of learning. And it was really fun to me. Have you found that your lack of an infrastructure, I guess, background or knowledge getting into DevOps to be a barrier as you were learning and getting started? It wasn't, I, I don't think it was a barrier, but it definitely made things a little bit more difficult for me. Because the first, so my first experience, my, my company was on AWS. And then, so basically they had everything manually. So all of their network EC2s and, and so on, they were all managed manually. And so my, my first challenge was to automate everything using, using CloudFormation at that time. But the problem is that I was learning the, you know, the infrastructure as, infrastructure as code tooling, but I didn't have the background of the infrastructure itself. So when I, when I had to you know, rebuild everything, I understood what a, let's say a VPC is, what an EC2 instance is, et cetera. But when it came to things more in depth, like, you know, private and pri uh, public and private subnets with net gateways and routes and all these sort of things, that wasn't clear to me. So I had to have someone from, from the infrastructure team to, to help me out and explain how, how their infrastructure worked. So I think I was lucky in that respect because I was learning both at the same time. But a lot of things in in DevOps, you're gonna have to uh, to have this infrastructure knowledge, right? Even even if you don't have right now, but definitely you're gonna have to go through through that process and and understand. And so I don't think it's necessarily a barrier for for people to get into DevOps, but it's definitely something that people cannot avoid. I I honestly don't see that happening, right? I think I completely agree with you there. That's very similar. Um, I originally started in a company that had kind of colo and data centers and lots of VMs, and I moved into a company that was completely on AWS. Um, I think I learned like GitHub and AWS and Jenkins all at the same time coming on. And you're like, I kind of understand that this is a, like a workflow really, and it's doing things that the devs are doing manually, but kind of putting those pieces together of like, what is, I didn't know what a VPC was. That was like a week of my life of just reading docs and being like, what is this? And why do I need it? And what does it do for me? I just want a server running. Like, <laughs> I think that original, uh, I guess like hurdle or learning curve can be pretty rough, but I think you completely nailed it in that you don't necessarily already need to have it, but you're not gonna escape it. Like it's something you will learn as you're doing the job and it'll kind of come as you keep practicing and getting to do it. Exactly. And I think this is something that is, you know, it, it will come one after the other. So sometimes people are worried about, okay, so I don't know how to deploy a, a website on, on an EC2, on a VPC, et cetera. And they're like, okay, so there's just so many things happening here, but it's very important for you to, to break it down, right? All of the concept and everything that you're going to have to learn. So if you're talking about deploying an app to an EC2, well, you need to know what an EC2 is, right? And if it's going to be on a network, so learn about 
how to deploy a network on, on AWS or whatever cloud provider you're, you're learning. But yeah, so it's basically like, at least from my experience, when I learn one thing, there is something else coming. And then I kind of like stopped and I go to that. I stop and I go to something else, right? And then once I understand, I go very deep and understand everything. Then I come back all the way to the beginning and, and continue. So that that's going to be something very natural that people are, people are going to go through. Definitely. I always felt like it was a lot like putting a puzzle together. You know, you get a bunch of all the different pieces and maybe you don't know how they fit together, but you'll start maybe with a section that looks easier. Uh, maybe, you know, there's a face or a detailed part where you can clearly see where they connect and you just keep going from there. Um, I think that's an excellent way that you've explained it coming into that. So now that you've been in this space for a little longer, are you finding that things that originally interested you about DevOps are still the same things that keep you interested on it today? Mm, that's a good question, actually. I'll, I'll say yes, but not necessarily. So the first topic I've learned about was infrastructure as code. And, you know, that's that's something that it's near and dear to my heart since I since I learned about it the first time. And it, it's something that I do every day. And I'll probably continue to do it even more, but I wouldn't say that's the only thing that keeps me interested. You know, there's so many other topics that have been developing over the years. For example, I've been I've been learning a lot about data engineering, creating data pipelines, and using technologies like Kinesis Streams, Kinesis Firehose on AWS to build a data lake, for example. So now what I'm trying to do is to bring my DevOps and automation experience to the data field. And also I've been playing around with some machine learning and artificial intelligence solutions and so on. So yeah, infrastructure as code definitely still keeps me interested, but I wouldn't say that's the only thing. I, I feel like the industry moves so fast and we always need to be learning new things all the time. And I, I think that's mostly what keeps me going, you know, to have to learn, to get out of my comfort zone and also to combine different practices like software engineering and data engineering with DevOps. I feel like I'm going to have to come back another time and ask you a bunch of questions about machine learning and generally data things, because those are things that I really want to start doing, but haven't got much of a background yet in. <laughs> yeah, same, same as me. I mean, that's something that I'm, I'm still, I'm still learning, right? Because in my, in my role, I don't do that like, you know, um, every, every day, right? So it really depends on the solution that we're working with. Sometimes we're building a data solution for, for a client and they bring in DevOps resources to, to help with the automation. And that's when I get exposed to, to this kind of services. But yeah, it's definitely something that it's, uh, it's a very interesting and it's a very exciting field as well. Yeah, there's kind of, I think it's been like a really hot button debate uh, since before I even started about is DevOps a role or is it like a philosophy or a flow or a cultural pattern? Um, and there's very strong opinions on both sides and really all the sides. So I was kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that. So I think it's not, it's definitely not just a role, even though that, that was how I started. So when I started in DevOps, I was the only person taking care of automation and, and so on much more than a role. I think I would say that this is definitely a cultural thing. So I know I just kind of put you on the spot with that question. Um, so I'll just give you a moment to think about it. And while you're thinking, I'm going to kind of share a couple of my thoughts on it. Um, I've started as a DevOps engineer, as I said, I've got about five years of resume experience labeled as a DevOps engineer. And while I think it is important to have some kind of ownership over this process and custodying it, because really developers have different goals and different deadlines. Um, sometimes these processes get in the way and there's conflict of interest. I think it's a mix. There needs to be a team, maybe a platform team, SREs, whatever name we want to use, but there should be a team whose, who's like a, 
the craft is making sure that these patterns are good, they work, they're tested, and that this is like their kind of, uh, the word I want, craft really, but this is the thing that they specialize in and they build and it is the thing that they polish and care for to make sure everything else uh, is a well-oiled machine and moves smoothly. But as far as having a team of people who are DevOps, if it's just that team's job to also be the advocates and the builders and the stewards of uh, culture decisions here, it won't really work. You need more buy-in than just one team that's on it. You can't really just pull a team in to just fix those problems, in my opinion. Um, you need to have some support from the other product and engineering teams that work towards a common goal. Yeah, for sure. There's there's so much debate around that. And I don't see DevOps as a single person or a single team. I think before before I go in depth into into this question, there's there's another question which I you know, which which will allow me to elaborate a little bit more on that, which is what is DevOps in the first place, right? And so I you know, I know a lot of people see DevOps purely as a role, you know, that one person can just come and fill in, but it is just it goes beyond that, right? It goes beyond a, beyond a role, it goes beyond a single person. So DevOps is basically a combination of different things, culture practices and tools which you know allow organizations to to deliver software to their clients to their customers at a high speed and when it comes to the cultural aspect it's it's very important that companies you know break down silos and that's the famous developers just throwing code over the wall to the operations team to run so instead both the dev and the operations team need to be able to collaborate and they need to have shared goals, which is what you mentioned as well. They need to have shared goals, which is, you know, to deliver reliable software uh, in an automated way and so on. And so when you have these two teams, when they have the same goal, it's just much easier for them to work together. And, you know, to give an example, the, the operations folks usually take care of, let's say, centralizing logging, setting up monitoring and, and the sort of things. Now, the devs need to understand what's required in order for the ops team to imp implement a central logging solution. Perhaps devs need to make sure that the application sends logs to a file or to standard output, whatever it is, they always need to be on the same page. Now, I talked about dev and ops, but of course that it can also go beyond that too. We've been hearing a lot about DevSecOps lately, which, you know, it means instead of leaving security aside, forgetting about it and coming back to it at the very end, security needs to be present from the get-go. I mean, we can't we can really expect developers to know how to code, to know how to secure software, infrastructure, plus implement and manage all of the company's infrastructure. I mean, that, that would be an awesome team for sure, but don't get me wrong, but I, you need people with specialized knowledge. And so while developers build software, the security team should have the ability to come in and have a dialogue with the developers to make sure that you know they're, they're following application best practices and so on. And at the same time, the security team needs to be able to come to the operations team that is working on the shiny new CI city pipeline and agree about which security checks they're gonna run as part of that pipeline. So yeah, in summary, it's all about collaboration between the teams. It's all about communication between the teams as well, and also sharing a common goal. Exactly. And I think it's really important to bring these different perspectives in as early as you can, because that way you get the chance to kind of address the problems as fast as you can. I think it takes away from some of that adversarial feelings that you can get later on in the pipeline when you're like, okay, it's time to deploy. And security's like, okay, but we've got these giant problems that we can't deploy this. 
um, being able to kind of address those early in helps really to bring a team towards the product goal together. It's important to have a balance of people that own this piece and want to build it with good patterns and are there to help, um, as well as contributors who have expertise in their areas and working together to just build that and make it as best as they can. As much as like, I really loved being a de DevOps engineer. Um, it was a lot like DevRel where you kind of, you get to see everything and you get to be like, oh, I want to do pipelines or you find these problems that are causing pain points for people and that's what you get to choose to work on. But of course, the risk is that with a title like that, you become a catch-all. Exactly, yeah. And another thing that I did not mention, but it's very important as well, is the no blame game. When an organization have a DevOps mindset, no one needs to blame. If, if, if something goes wrong, the team needs to take responsibility and make sure that that doesn't happen again. And that happened to me actually when I was starting my career. So I was running some tests in a staging database. And one day I, I just didn't notice and I actually was in prod. And, you know, let's just say that it, it wasn't pretty what happened after. But the thing is that no one's pointing finger at me. Everyone, you know, the operations team, the developers, et cetera, they all got together and we all solved the problem together. And later we implemented a few procedures to make sure that that doesn't happen again. So. So yeah, that's another very important aspect of DevOps as well. Yes. Yeah, I love that. It's funny, I feel like there's the two Ds of like disaster as an early DevOps engineer and they both are uh, DNS and databases. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on the topic of being early in your career, what is some advice you would give to somebody who's looking to land their first DevOps job? Hmm. Yeah, so landing your first DevOps job. I mean, so, you know, first things first, uh, going back to, to that discussion about DevOps, we're, we're not really talking about like a single role, right? And so from, from my experience, you're, you, know, you have to choose a focus first. So usually when people say, how can I get into DevOps? They, they really mean like, what, what do I do to be able to work with cloud, to build CI CD pipelines, to be able to automate software deployments and so on. And it's perfectly fine to view DevOps this way, honestly, because you know that that's how you're probably gonna find a description of a DevOps role in many of the job posting websites. But here's my tip, and 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 that's really that's really going to depend on your on your tech background. For those who are, let's say, finish up college or university, it's it's very likely that they're. Um, they're, they're going to be focusing a lot on programming languages. And I think it's natural to see, you know, many college university graduates to get into the industry as a software engineer first, which, which was my case. Right. And, ah, and I, and I should say if, you know, if a college university student says that they want to start their career in DevOps, I, I actually applaud them because, you know, in my, in my opinion, university courses, they do not do the greatest job in giving you know, the big picture as to what DevOps is. And I say that because I, I've interviewed third and fourth year students for an internship already. But anyways, my, my tip would be, don't worry about landing your first DevOps job out of college university. And you know why? It's it's going to be a huge benefit for them if they, if they have a solid developer background first, and then later they transition to the infrastructure side of things. And I can say that from my personal experience. Well, we're giving advice for people who've had similar backgrounds with yours. If you're listening and you're like, oh, but I'm not already a dev, or maybe I've come from a QA background or something similar, um, there's many different paths to get into it. Of course that, you know, we, we can't forget that many people already are in the industry and might not have a developer background. So likely they've been working as sysadmins, let's say. So how 
how can they transition into DevOps? So I usually say that, you know, if, if you have sysadmins, if a structured background, that's already an amazing first step. But to be a little bit more concrete and, and what I'm trying to say, there is, there is, a, there is a foundation called uh, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is the, the CNCF. And they, they created a, a cloud native reference architecture. And I, I love that architecture because it actually has a very clear path that a lot of people can take uh, to make it, you know, to make this transition. So this reference architecture has multiple layers. And the first layer is at the very bottom is the infrastructure layer. And that means, you know, the cloud. There are different types of cloud. There is private, there is public. There is a mix of both, which we call the hybrid. And so my advice would be to start with the public cloud for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, public cloud is much more accessible to everyone. So you can simply sign up for an AWS GCP account and start experimenting. Number two is that the vast majority of job postings for DevOps positions will likely mention at least one public cloud. So that's, that, that's why I, I think it's a great starting point. Now, where to start exactly when it comes to public cloud. I mean, if you, if you go to the AWS console, you're gonna see a list of services so big that it's probably gonna give you nightmares. <laughs> and my my advice here would be, and that's what I actually did when I was starting with the public cloud, is to choose the most basic and popular services and learn them. So to give an example, when I was learning AWS, I chose three main services, VPC, EC2, and let's assume load balancer is within EC2. And then the third one was RDS. And so what I did was to come up with a scenario where I would have to deploy a website running on EC2 instances behind a load balancer in a VPC with public and private subnets. And the website will be exposing an API which, uh, which will retrieve information from, from a database, which is managed by, by RDS. But okay, right now, so how can I come up with a scenario like that if I don't even know what a VPC, EC2, or RDS is? Well, the thing is that I didn't know either. I, I remember researching how to deploy a website to AWS. And so I came across an article which was talking about exactly that. And at that time, I honestly had no clue about any of these services. But you know, that that's when I started learning. So the first thing I, I started reading about was EC2. So I went to my account, I launched an EC2 instance. Once I understood what EC2 was, I, I noticed that I had to select a VPC to deploy the EC2 in. So then I asked a question, okay, so what's a VPC? What makes a subnet public? What makes it private and so on? So naturally you're gonna ask yourself a lot of questions and that's okay, that's great, that's how you learn. So all this to say, start with public cloud, choose the most basic and popular services, come up with a scenario and implement the scenario. All right, that's the first layer. Now the second layer is the provisioning layer. Remember my example where I deployed an EC2 and RDS to VPC? Well, so initially I, I did everything, you know, in the console, just clicking buttons. But now on the, you know, in the provisioning layer, that's when the automation starts. So instead of launching the same infrastructure using the console, use a technology like Terraform, for example. So read about infrastructure as code. Then another aspect of the provisioning layer is the operating system itself. So when you run a website on a server, naturally you need to have a couple of things installed, libraries, tools, whatever it is. Now, how, how can you install these tools without having to do that manually? 
then you're gonna start learning about configuration management tools like Chef, Puppet, Ansible. And when you combine these two things together, like it's configuring a server with Ansible, Chef, and then launching that server with Terraform, then you're starting to get to, to another level, right? So, but, but we, we can stop there, we need to keep going. <laughs> so, the, and then after that, the next layer is the cloud native runtime. And when it comes to runtime, we're mainly talking about containers and the best place to get started with containers is by learning Docker. So learn the basics of Docker, what a container is, what an image is, how to push an image to a remote repo, how to package your application into a container image and so on. And once you understand how containers work, then you're ready for the second to last layer, which is the container orchestration and management layer. Now that's when things start to get fun. And this is basically how you can scale container deployments on the cloud. And that's exactly when you're gonna come across tools like HashCorp Nomad, Kubernetes, etc. Some people might not be sure which tool to choose, but I, I, I say is what I say is if you're looking for, you know, if you're looking to make a career transition or land your first job, believe me, I mean it, it does not matter, right? So if you learn Kubernetes, you'll be able to understand how Nomad works. If you start with Nomad, you're gonna be able to understand how Kubernetes works. I mean, may, maybe, <laughs> no, I'm joking. I mean, what, what I wanna say is that the concepts and the, the mechanisms are very similar. And so if you if you learn A, and but the job requires B, rest assured that you're gonna be able to handle it. And so don't spend too much time choosing a technology, just, just go for it. And then the final layer is the, the application deployment layer. And that's when you're gonna be learning about CI CD, how to integrate version control with your pipelines, store application artifacts and storage solutions, so on and so forth. And when you get to the very top, challenge yourself to understand how all of these layers connect with each other. And here is here is a scenario to, to explain what I'm what I'm talking about. So imagine creating a pipeline which launches a Kubernetes cluster on AWS using Terraform and deploys a containerized application to your Kubernetes cluster. I mean, it, sound, it sounds simple, but with this scenario, you connected the infrastructure layer with the provisioning, the orchestration, the runtime, and the application deployment layers. And that's really, really powerful. And, and something I always say to people, don't just learn each one of these technologies, but learn how to combine them. I completely agree with that. I think being patient and being just being gentle with yourself. Um, as somebody who's new, you might come in and you'll see documentation that says it's as simple as this or as easy as that. Just be, be patient. If you don't get it right away, if you make mistakes, try to remember that the person who wrote this documentation knows it really well. They're very experienced. It's not their first time approaching it. So just really be patient and gentle with yourself. Just have to add that on. <laughs> So do you think knowing a programming language is necessary for being in a DevOps role? Oh, that's an awesome question, to be honest. Uh, okay, so here's the thing. If you if you asked me this question seven years ago, let's say, I, I might have answered no, it's not necessary. I mean, that's if you're part of the infrastructure team, right? Not, not the software engineering team. I mean, you'll definitely need to know programming languages if you're in the software engineering team. But being in the infrastructure team seven years ago or so, you'd have to know scripting languages for sure. So Bash, Perl, Python, although Python, you know, it's, it's also used for, for building software, not only scripts, but you wouldn't have to necessarily know how to code. Now, fast forwarding a couple of years, 
then it's another story. So after after Lambda came out and and serverless started to become a thing, you you started you started seeing more and more these event driven architectures, and a lot of people started leveraging the the power of functions to automate processes as well. And to develop a function, naturally, you'll need to know a programming language. But I I don't think that's the only thing. You know, if you think of CloudFormation or, or Terraform a few years ago, there was only so much you could achieve with YAML or JSON or even the HashCorp configuration language. And that's why when people needed something as powerful as a programming language, they found out ways to leverage that. To give an example, I've used a Python library called Troposphere to dynamically generate CloudFormation templates. And if you take a look at where we are now, now there is the AWS CDK, which which stands for Cloud Development Kit. And it's a way to use programming languages like Java, C Sharp, Python, TypeScript to dynamically generate CloudFormation templates. For those who use Terraform, now there is a CDK for Terraform. And, and so I can see the industry slowly transitioning to a point where programming languages will be more and more used to automate processes. So while I don't think it's required for, for someone to, to know how to program, nowadays, I, I think it becomes a huge asset. So we've talked a little bit about the different paths you can take to get into DevOps, whether you're a student or you're transitioning from another career. But a question somebody had asked me to ask you was, what are some of the differences you see in members that transferred into DevOps from other practices? That Yeah, that, that, that that's an interesting thing because sometimes you can tell which practice that person came from depending on how they approach a problem. It's, it's funny, but you know, I, I have an example. So one day my, my team needed to create something that would help us uh, run Terraform in an effective way. So then I, I, I asked the person that had a sysadmin background, how they would go about, how they would go about doing that and solving that problem. And they said, yeah, I would, I would just create, you know, a make file that calls the different bash scripts to run Terraform. And so, but, but then I asked the same question to a developer and they had a different answer, of course. So they said, you know, I, you know, I think I would just create a, a command line interface in Go that you can just install in any terminal and that would be an interface for running Terraform. I mean, both solutions work fine, but it's just, it's just the way they think about it. And another example, I, I was working with a QA person in a, in a project and they, they wanted to understand what is cloud formation. So I, I explained what it is and I was showing some, some YAML files and everything. And the, f the first question this QA person asked me was, okay, but how do you write unit tests for this? <laughs> and which was an amazing question. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean the main difference I, I usually see in my experience is really how they approach a, a solution. Um, I know along the way for me, I used a lot of Cloud Guru tutorials. Uh, I pretty much lived off of the Netflix blog about chaos engineering and building resilient systems. That was like, as a solo DevOps engineer. So that was like my life for like two years. <laughs> so I guess, do you have any resources to share for someone who's looking to learn DevOps tools or practices? Yeah, of course. I mean, there, there's so many. One, one of my favorite resources to explore new tools is a website called Catacoda. And the cool thing about Catacoda is that you can simply choose a tool and there's gonna be different scenarios that you can go through to learn that tool. And the Catacoda provisions the environment for you actually, which is you know, which, which is pretty neat because you don't have to set up everything yourself. And so yeah, so I'll definitely take I'll definitely recommend taking a look at Catacoda. Now for those wanting to learn AWS and especially those wanting to get certified, A Cloud Guru has helped me tons as well. 
So they have a lot of courses only focused on the certs, but they also have some deep dive courses. And also you can't forget the most basic thing, which is documentation, right? So you know you know that you know a lot a lot of tools they they have documentation which can be used to uh, to get started, and a lot of them even have tutorials. And of course, I can't say that without mentioning the HashCorp Learn platform, which you you can find at learn.hashcorp.com. I've you know I've leveraged this platform a lot already, especially when I was learning Nomad, Boundary, uh, Waypoint, and so on. So so yeah, don't forget to start with the basics, read the tools, documentation. Another website which is worth mentioning here as well is, is called roadmap.sh. So roadmap.sh is an interesting one. So it's basically a website that has some diagrams showing the the path that someone could take in order to become a front-end developer, a back-end developer, and of course, they also have a diagram for, for DevOps. So if you're interested in, in a DevOps diagram, you can just go to roadmap.sh slash DevOps. Now I have to say, I mean, <laughs> please don't think that you need to know all of those purple and green check marks before you can start with DevOps. I mean, that's just not, that's just not possible. Yeah. Like it's not like something you have to do every single step of every single piece, but it kind of gives you an overview or a picture of what that flow might look like and what, in, like what order roughly you can learn the information in. This is, this is purely to give you an idea of everything we deal with. And like it or not, this will only come with years and years and years of experience. It's, it's as simple as that, but it is a way for you to, to have an idea about the type of work that we do and the type of technologies we use. And the last thing I wanted to mention, which is, um, which I think is really the best resource. It's, it's you, it's your willingness to learn. It's your persistence. And most importantly, it's your patience. Patience is key here, to be honest, because no one learns this overnight, no one. And so if, if you combine all these resources, you have great, great chances of easily learning something new, whatever it is. Yeah, something we talked about a bit earlier was how there's so many options out there and it's, it's really easy to kind of get some choice paralysis looking at how to get started, but there is so many different things out there. And I think something that would really help anyone listening is just be aware of what your learning style is. What kind of things help you to learn the best? Um, like I've got ADHD and I find very long text, messed up, like walls of text or long videos very, very hard to learn from. And something that I've recently discovered that I wish we had more of when I was starting is things like Exorcism or the Escape Coding Games sites. Um, I find those are a lot more engaging and I'm actually looking forward to playing with those a bit more. But just be aware of how you learn best and do your best to support yourself through that and find the resources that will help you do that. There's so many things out there, like what worked for one person may not work for you and that is completely okay. <laughs> I just have to say that one. <laughs> I guess that kind of transitions us into learning strategy a bit there. Um, so talk, let's talk about some learning strategies and how do you usually learn a new technology? Okay, so to explain this, um, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about how I learned Nomad. So the first question I asked myself when I was learning Nomad was, what is the purpose of this tool, right? So what, what, what problem is it trying to solve? And that's usually something you can read about in the official documentation, whatever the tool is. So I read about Nomad's purpose. And in my case, since I had Kubernetes experience, it was quite easy for me to understand, but let's assume I didn't have any Kubernetes experience, right? So I usually start with the purpose. Once I understand the purpose, it's time to get my hands dirty. So, and I usually get the most basic tutorial I can find, right? So in my case, uh, learning Nomad, I just followed the, the official docs 
And so my and, and so the first thing I, I did was to deploy an example application to a Nomad cluster. And you know, by cluster, I mean my local machine. Very simple, right? At, at this point, I had no clue what I was doing. I mean, I, I knew I was deploying an app, but the definition file I was using, I couldn't fully understand it. And you know, that's okay. I mean, the first time you try something, you don't have to understand everything. You just need to see it working, that's it. And once the most basic tutorial works for you, then you can start going a little bit deeper and, and learning all, all of the concepts. So then I learned, you know, what a job is. I learned what a task group is, what a task is and so on. And then once I was able to understand this definition file that I initially had no clue about, then I, I decided to write my own definition file without looking from scratch. So I challenged myself to write the same definition file as that example application but without looking and from scratch. Of course, I didn't do it in the first try. It took it took me some time, right? But you know, the, the important thing here is to not copy and paste and try to write yourself. When I was past that and I was able to write the file myself, then I started to create, you know, different scenarios. Um, okay, I you know I I deployed an app to my local machine, but how does it work to deploy to an actual cluster with servers and clients? So then after I deployed a single app, how does it work to deploy two apps that need to discover each other? So, so yeah, to summarize, first, understand the purpose of the tool. Then follow the most basic tutorial you can find. Copy and paste code. You don't have to understand everything. You just need to make it work. Then you start going deeper and reading about concepts, topics, relevant to that tool, write things yourself from scratch. And then finally, you come, you can come up with different scenarios where one scenario is more challenging than, than the other. And, and that, that's basically my, my strategy to, to learn new things. I'm really happy that you brought up the scenarios and use cases there at the end, because that kind of transitions us really nicely into something else I want to talk to you about, which is the DevOps dojos that you've been building. Um, for those who are listening who maybe don't already know this, I actually met Renan through the DevOps dojos he built here. He was doing a Nomad one, so we're both Toronto-based, and it was really nice to both see this happening locally, but also your dojos are very well built. Um, you even got me tricked on a couple of the last steps there where I was just absolutely stumped. <laughs> they were great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jackie. I, I appreciate you saying that. And, and yeah, so I, I can give an overview of as to what the dojo is. So the dojo is a 100% hands-on event, which I've been doing for the past three years or so. And it's basically an event where the attendees are given a tag challenge that has a problem statement, and they need to team up and build a solution using a variety of technologies. We obviously provide all the infrastructure resources that the attendees need to, to build a solution because, you know, this is supposed to be a relatively short event around two to three hours and to give you just to give a couple of examples of dojos that we de we've done in the past so the first one was about deploying microservices to a kubernetes cluster then we had one about using terraform to do multi-cloud deployments and then another one was about creating a global transit network on aws using transit gateways and resolvers so yeah, each event is about one or more topics and everyone has an opportunity to get their hands on different set of tools and technologies. And I usually say that this is this event is, is kind of a mix between a workshop and a hackathon because there are instructions that you know show you what you need to build like in a workshop, 
but you won't be told exactly how to build the solution, which will require a lot of thinking, a lot of discussions between the teammates, researching, just like in a hackathon. But of course that, you know, this is not a competition and it's it's just purely an event for, for learning and, and getting to know other people. Yay! <laughs> when I went, something you did a really good job of doing is taking this challenge and solution and actually splitting it up into incremental steps. Um, so as you kind of work through the workshop, it gets more difficult as you keep going. And I think that felt really good. Like you have some smaller wins for people who are newer and they're trying to get started and maybe everything's really daunting to them. And you kind of just keep building up the, do uh, the workshop until you get to a more complicated layer. And I thought that was something you did really well with these. So why did you decide to create this event? This event? Like what inspired you? I think there are I think there are a couple of reasons as to as to why I decided to create this event. So the you know the first reason is because the way I usually learn. So you know I'm I'm the kind of person that I can read and listen as much as I want, but I I do not fully grasp a concept until I actually try it myself. And I think that's valid for a lot of people in tech actually. You know it it's really important to to be able to experiment things and and see with your own eyes how it actually works. And also, especially here in Toronto, there are so many, you know, talk events already happening that, that made me think, you know, I want to I wanna complement all of these talk events because in these events, people learn by listening, but perhaps they could also learn by doing. And, and so that's, that's when I, I was sold on, on the idea. Uh, and another, another reason as well is that I, I simply love teaching people and I love seeing people learning new things. I've had, you know, so many great feedbacks over the past few years of people that went to one of the events and either they learned enough to land a job or what they learned made a difference in their current job and so on. And I and, and so I feel really grateful to be able to to provide this kind of opportunity to others. And so I I think my my passion for for learning something new, my passion for teaching and my passion for seeing others learning and developing, uh, that's really what inspired me. That makes sense. I know I personally really appreciate having what is more of a safe space because everyone's trying to learn it together. You have people to kind of rubber duck off of as you're trying to solve it. You also have like a problem that I think a lot of times in tech, we have problems where maybe it's not a problem we can even solve with our current tool set or our current architecture. So it's good to have these kind of tiered challenges that you know you can reach a resolution on. It gives you kind of the confidence to keep learning and pushing through and the support for it. So I personally really appreciate having these as an option to go to. So prior to the dojo, did you have any experience with writing challenges already? I did, yeah. It was it was actually fun. So back back when I was in university, I I started working with one of my professors and I volunteered to help him run, you know, the lab sessions for, for a couple of modules. And at that time he was he was he was the one coming up with all the lab instructions, but then at some point I was like, hey, can I could I just try to write a lab myself, you know, to this course? And he said, yeah, I mean, you know, do you want to write all of the instructions by yourself? And I said, yeah, let me try it. Let me try it. And so I did it. And, and so I, I wrote my first lab for, for one of the modules. And he, he was quite impressed, you know, with the level of details they put into, into the instructions. And, and what happened is that he told me, you know, just keep going. And, and so I, I was at some point, I was just writing the labs for a couple of modules for, for about a year. And that's really when I gained this experience of, of writing challenges 
which I'm super grateful for because that's, you know, that allowed me to, to start writing challenges for, for the dojos and other events as well. You know, recently I, I worked together with this super awesome YouTube channel called OWASP DevSlop. And we, we did something which I, I had never done before. So in security, there is a type of event uh, called CTF, which means capture the flag. And in these events, uh, people need to, you know, solve different security related challenges and find like secrets in the solutions. And, and the more secrets you find, the more points you get. And, and the teams that have the most amount of points win the competition. So instead of doing the traditional security CTF, we actually mixed things a little bit and we did a DevOps CTF. So I, I took the approach I usually use for, for building dojos, but I formatted it in a way that allowed people to find, you know, little secrets here and there while they were building the solution. But yeah, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm just really glad I, I had that opportunity in university because that's where it all started. And that's why I'm here doing these things today. So we've talked a little bit about what they are and how you've gotten into them. Um, for folks who are listening and maybe interested in participating, how are they able to join or come to any other events that you organize? Right, I was actually looking forward to talking about that. So yeah, so all events are announced on meetup.com and I'm, I'm actually starting a new meetup group, which is uh, which will be totally focused on engaging with the DevOps community, especially those who are looking for a career transition or landing their first job or even learning by, by doing. So if you're interested in participating of a dojo and a couple of more things that I, I can't just say it right now, but it's coming up soon. So head over to meetup.com slash build underscore DevOps, one word, build underscore DevOps, and join our group. And you can also find me on Twitter. My handle is at Dojo with Renan altogether. And whenever I'm, you know, whenever I'm planning a new event, I'll definitely be tweeting about it. So it's an easy way for you to, to stay tuned. And finally, I, I just wanted to mention, I do have a YouTube channel where I post, you know, videos showing how to build different solutions based on the dojos that I create. So if you go to one of these events and, you know, either you don't finish the solution or maybe you get stuck somewhere and you, you don't know what to do, you're, you're going to be able to find a solution for, for these challenges in, uh, in my channel. And you see that, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not as active as a lot of people on, on YouTube. And that's mostly because, you know, most of my time I, I spend writing challenges for, for these events and preparing these events. But, but, but yeah, my channel is, is called the same way as my Twitter handle, Dojo with Renan. Perfect. I'll make sure to drop a link for that into our and at all the other resources we've discussed so far in this podcast as well. Those will be getting dropped into the blog post that releases with this under a resources section for those who are listening and would like to go find these things. I, um, I sent out a message to the DevOps TO Slack and was like, does anybody have any questions for Renan? And something Augusto came up with was, where do you find the energy to do it and how do you stay motivated? <laughs> Oh, I like that question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, in terms of in terms of motivation, uh, what really motivates me is is really teaching others, and that's that that's probably because I I have teachers in my family, so it, it's it's likely in my blood anyways. So yeah, I I really love seeing people you know learning and discovering new things. Uh, one of my favorite things actually is when you know when someone is is trying to understand something, and they have that moment. Oh, I got it. You know. I, yeah, I just love seeing that. And, and I think that's, that's the main source of my, my motivation. Now, where do I find the energy? That's another great question that I, I might not have the straight answer for. Yeah. 
but you know it's it's probably because i'm i'm doing something i'm i'm passionate about and and yeah i mean that's that's what it is i mean when you when you combine something that motivates you and you're you're passionate about that's where the energy naturally comes from it's it's like that saying you know find a job that you love and enjoy and you're never going to have to work again and I think it's it's kind of like that for me. So sometimes I you know I wake up at six a.m. to write challenges and prepare events, and and it's not so much about about caffeine intake because I don't, I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> but yeah, I'd say you know the energy really comes from from the passion of of doing these things. That sounds good to me. You know, people in tech are known for having strong opinions. We we have heated debates over things like tabs versus spaces. It is just a thing that comes with working in tech. Um, are there any kind of like hot takes or strong opinions that you have that you're interested in sharing that are fun? Not to start debates on the internet, just kind of as a, a fun perspective thing. <laughs> oh, a tech hot take. Okay, let's see. Um, so I think the way the way we used to see infrastructure as code is definitely gonna change i i, I kind of spoke about that before but i just wanted to elaborate on that a little bit more so a couple of years ago it was you know it was really common to see folks who did not have experience with programming languages doing infrastructure as code and that was mostly because you know a lot of these technologies they they didn't require to write a program right so writing writing CloudFormation templates in yaml or or json or terraform files in the hash corp configuration language there, there wasn't a lot of barriers for for folks who didn't, you know, who didn't have a developer background, but now I I can see things changing. I think especially with a with products like the AWS CDK, the CDK for Terraform, or even Pulumi, we'll we'll probably see a lot more IEC projects, you know, which will require knowledge of programming languages, because if you think, you know, how how can you even test? your infrastructure if you're writing a definition following YAML, for example. You're definitely gonna need some some other tools to help you with that. But when you use a programming language, you're you're not gonna struggle with you know doing conditionals, you're not gonna struggle with building powerful loops. And you will have the ability also to write even unit tests, integration tests for your infrastructure code. And not only that, I think that's that's going to result in a lot more developers getting involved in writing code to to manage infrastructure, which, you know, I think it's awesome. So, so yeah, I think programming language will definitely be a barrier for folks who want to to work with IAC in the future. But I mean, that's that's just my take, right? We'll, we'll see what's going to happen. It's always fun to hear the different opinions that people have. So thank you for sharing that. And I guess while we're talking about opinion pieces, do you have any top tips to share with our listeners? All right, top tips. Yeah, so there is there is something I actually didn't mention at all during during our conversation, which which I think is extremely important. And so we we talk a lot about technology. We talk a lot about how to how to learn new things, how to get started with DevOps and so on. But there is a type of skill that a lot of people tend to ignore and don't realize that it's as important as the tech skill, which is the the soft skills. And I'm sure a lot of people here know what a soft skill is, but in case you're wondering soft skills is related to your people skills so how you communicate whether or not you're able to listen to others how you manage your time and and so on and i say you know i say this as 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 important as attack skills because in a devops environment like we've been saying 
there needs to be collaboration between the teams. So you, you need to be able to communicate with your teammates. And because in agile, you know, things move quite fast. And, you know, every, every, every sprint, which can last for a week or two or anything in between, you'll have a lot of a lot to deliver. So time management is key as well as, you know, adaptability. How, how many times we delivered some features in a sprint and that either resulted in a bug or the client wasn't happy about and we had to pivot and change the solution. So you need to be able to adapt to, to these challenging situations and you need to stay positive. You need to be able to motivate your, your teammates. So yeah, all this to say, not only focus on the tech side, but be aware of your soft skills as well and always, always, always work on them because it's not something you can do overnight, right? It takes time and it, and it takes effort. Before we wrap up, for anyone who's listening, we are going to be doing a HashiCorp Live episode together on June 4th where we'll be running through a dojo together. And so if you're interested, if you've heard, and now you want to actually take a stab at it and try it with us, come join us at twitch.tv slash HashiCorp Live on June 4th at about 5 p.m. EST. We'll have the schedule posted there as well, and you'll be able to find updates from our HashiCorp handle on Twitter too. Just before I wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share to listeners? Well, I just I just wanted to thank everyone really that listened to this episode. I I really appreciate your time and thank you, Jackie, as well, for, for inviting me. I'm looking forward very much to our our session on, on HashiCorp Live in a couple of days. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having you on that. It'll be fun. I'm excited for it. That's going to be super fun. And if anyone wants to chat, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Don't be shy. Just just send me a message. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It was great having you on the show today. And I really just can't wait until our HashiCorp Live on June 4th. Thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts and opinions on all of these things. And look forward to seeing you soon. You've been listening to HashiCast with your host, me, Jackie. Today's guest was Renan Diaz from Slalom Build. Thank you so much for joining us today and be sure to tune in next time.